Thank you guys very much. I did want to mention that if you'd like to pass on any information to us, we have these comment cards that you can pull out and uh, place those in the black boxes um, at the end of the service. We appreciate your comments and thoughts. Um, Danita, before you get too far, um, Michelle Herman had her baby last night. Name is, not Michelle, I know Michelle's name, but... Madeline. Madeline. Madeline Elise. Madeline Elise. Right. Okay. So uh, we wanted to share that with you. You may have seen that prayer uh, request come out uh, earlier this week um, on the on the news line, so prayer line. So we want to say, Mom and baby are all doing uh, doing fine. So we are always excited about uh, about babies and, uh, and children, and because those are the future of our faith and the future of our congregation. And so we're excited about that. You may be wondering, what is this big thing up here on my right? Well, that is our new baptistry. And so Annette will be baptized at the end of the service um, today. So that is an exciting thing for us. And uh, um, I was telling these guys, they're, they're out of the splash zone, so they're good, so they don't have to worry about, uh, do you ever go like SeaWorld, you know, or whatever, you get to be in the splash zone so you can get the, the water, so we're, we're good. There's not going to be any splashing outside of, the, uh, outside of the baptistry. So we are continuing in our series today in Matthew called Moments in Matthew, and we're looking at chapters 9 and 10. And I've been asking you to read along with us two chapters a week, and so chapters 9 and, and 10 today, and... and um, Chapter 9 is such an interesting chapter because there are all of these healings and all of these miracles that happen in Matthew chapter 9. It's almost like from the, from the very beginning you see miracles go, go on. And one of my favorite miracles is in Matthew chapter 9. It's where Jesus heals a man that um, was actually lowered down through a roof into the presence of, of Jesus. Now, you don't get that detail from Matthew 9. We get that detail from Mark chapter 2. But, but one of the most interesting, Jesus says one of the most interesting things in, that, in the uh, execution of that particular miracle. So when they lay this man down in front of him, Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, Matthew doesn't write about this, but in Mark, we read that there are people in the crowd, the scribes and the Pharisees, sort of the religious leaders there, who begin to mumble amongst themselves like, wait a minute, who is this guy? Right? Who is this guy who's, who's saying that your sins are forgiven you? Like, nobody can forgive sins but, but God. Well, of course, Jesus knows what they're saying. And so Jesus says to them, hey, hey, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk? Now, if you think about that for a minute, if there was a person that had, um, I don't know, some, some sort of a debilitating disease that confined him or her into a wheelchair, and, and that person was sitting right in front of me, which is easier for me to say to that person, your sins are forgiven you, or rise up and walk? Well, it's obviously easier for me to say your sins are forgiven you, because we don't have sin meters. And so it's not like when I say your sin's forgiven you, the meter would go woo, over to empty, and so you'd all know, wow, this guy has power to forgive sins. It's easy to say that. I could say that about any one of you. No, I wouldn't, but I could say that about any one of you. You would never know. But if a person is in a wheelchair, and I say rise up and walk, and that person, for the very first time, maybe in his or her entire life, is able to rise up and walk. Whoa! Now we got something here, right? Now, now you're looking at me in a whole different way. And so as Jesus does all of these miracles, we see, first slide, is that Jesus' miracles validated both the message and the messenger. Right? Jesus didn't come to eradicate sickness from the earth. I mean, if he did, he did a bad job of it because we still experience that. 
But the Bible talks about him healing multiple people. In, in, in Matthew 9, if you just sort of read that down, I wrote down, he, he heals this particular man. He restores a girl to life. He heals a woman. He heals two blind men and a mute. Now, I've never worked in the ER before, but I imagine that would be a pretty good day, Right? If you're a nurse or a doctor in the ER, you say, what happened today? Well, we healed two guys who were blind. We, we, uh, we raised somebody back to, to life. I mean, and so all of this is happening in the context of the, mir- of the ministry of Christ to benefit those individual people for sure who are experiencing these miracles. But most importantly, I believe, to validate the message and the messenger that, yes, he has the ability to say your sins are forgiven you, And one of the reasons you and I can believe that is because he also had the ability to say, rise up and walk. And you saw that. And then also, um, of course, after the resurrection, validates the messenger, right? That's what's going on here. And then in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples and uh, gives them a warning. And that was, that's a really interesting, I just, I want to encourage you, read the Bible. It's, it's so, it's so amazing and so, and so interesting. But I want to go back to Matthew chapter 9, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, and talk about a phrase that is used here to describe Jesus and what I think it means for us today. So let's read Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. All right, so I mean, he's just healing everyone. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So we see Jesus being described as moved with compassion as he looks out onto the multitude of people. And we've talked about this before but it's hard to imagine why my clicker won't work. Let's go. Can you just move me on to the next one there? Trey? There we go. It's difficult to imagine the throng of people surrounding Jesus almost all the time, right? Josephus wrote, who was a first century historian, that there were about three million people who lived in that area of Galilee where Jesus did most of his ministry. No hospitals, no doctors to speak of, really. I mean, if you were sick, you were sick until you either got better or you died. And so all of a sudden, somebody shows up who can actually heal you. What would you do to get to that person? You'd do anything you could to get to that person. You would do anything you could to get close to that person, close enough uh, for him to touch you, close enough for him to see you and to recognize you and for you to be able to say, hey, here's my problem, heal me. I would imagine that much of Jesus' life was spent in these crowds. And it's kind of like, I picture it, have you ever been to Chris Kindle, the Chris Kindle market on one of those really nice weather nights, right? You know, it's cold, but not super cold. It's not snowing, or maybe just a little bit. And I mean, you're, you're just, you know, you're just <laughs> going like this, right? You just, you just can't move. And I imagine that that's what it must have been like to be around Jesus. That these multitudes of people are coming, and they're wanting to press into him. They're wanting to touch him. And they're wanting him to touch them. And yet, and yet, Jesus looks at these people with compassion. How does Jesus withstand the people, right? He not only withstood the people, but he stood with the people, right? He, he loved the people. He saw people not as a nuisance, 
right? Look, I got to get this Messiah thing done so people get away from me. No, he saw them as a necessity. He was the Savior of the world. He, brought, he wanted them to come to him. And he was moved with compassion. How do we make sure that we have that same attitude about people? That people do not become nuisances to us, but rather they become a necessity to us. How do we function in our world, as I believe that Jesus calls his followers to function in a way that is not solely just devoted to him on a mountain somewhere or isolated away, but he asks us to live in worshiping community, but he also asks us and invites us into the opportunity of ministering to other people. So let's look at what the Bible says about this a little bit. So Jesus stood with the people because he had compassion for the people, right? Very simple, just what it says. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Now, the English word compassion is composed of the prefix C-O-M and then the root word passion. And so, so C-O-M means with. So words like communion, the idea of with, um, company, you know, you have people with you. And so Passion has the idea of suffering. That's what it means. It means to suffer. So the idea of compassion is to suffer with. And the Greek word for compassion had to do with the bowels of the human body. Now, when we think of bowels, we tend to think of a particular part of the human anatomy and a particular function of that. But in first century, that's not what they would have thought of. They weren't thinking about that. They were thinking about the innards, the insides of the, of the human body. And so maybe you've heard the word used this way, like, um, again, I don't think it, we use it this way very much, but sometimes people talk about the bowels of the earth as being the center of the earth, or going into the bowels of a ship, you're going into the heart of a ship. And so I don't know that we use the word that much anymore that way, but that's the way they would have understood it. And because they didn't understand the brain, and they didn't understand where feelings came from and how that all originated, they did know where you felt feelings often, and where is that? like right in here. Like if you get nervous um, before you give a, maybe your first speech in high school, your first speech in college, or you got to give a presentation or something like that, where, where do you start to feel that? You don't really, you don't really feel that like in your fingers. You know, you feel it right here. Your stomach gets tied up in, we have phrases like, right? Stomach gets tied up in knots or, you know, I have a gut feeling about this. So, so the Greeks understood this idea that the feeling sort of originated inside of you, in the, in the bowels so you would feel um, compassion or you would feel mercy or you would feel pity because you could feel it in here that that word then became synonymous with this idea of compassion, with this idea of feeling, all right? So that's how the word is used there. And Jesus had compassion for these people. Jesus loved all of these people. He didn't... Um, he didn't want them to move away. And, and he had a sort of a, an up-close idea of compassion. Like, compassion is an up-close word. Like you, it's very difficult to have and demonstrate compassion far away. Right? So that's why people wanted to touch him. That's why Jesus wanted to touch other people. All right? So what I want to ask you this morning is this question. How do you feel? How do you feel about the sheep who are without a shepherd? How do you feel about them? Most of us know them. Sometimes they may be in our family. How do we feel about them? 
do we feel like, ah, just wish they'd kind of go away. Just wish they'd call somebody else. Just wish they'd, they'd figure it out. And I get it. I mean, we all feel that way to a certain extent, perhaps. But I believe God's Word calls us to something more. God's Word calls us to be compassionate. And I think God calls us to be compassionate even if we're not compassionate by nature. And I've been transparent with you. This is not really how I'm wired. I'm not wired for compassion. It's draining for me. But that doesn't give me, that's not an excuse. It's not like I can say, look, I, I really know I ought to feel this towards you, but I just really don't. So just go find somebody else to help you. No, no, no. You and I are called to feel compassion, called to use that which God has given to us to minister to other people. And again, I just picture Jesus being exhausted physically in his humanity and yet still having time and still taking time for others. Next slide. It's interesting to me that several of the fruit of the Spirit seem related to compassion, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. Three of those, I think, sort of directly related to this, right? Patience. Boy, it takes patience to have compassion, right? It really does. Because, I mean, again, regularly, people that we're called to be compassionate toward don't usually get it right the first time. They don't usually take the advice the first time. Kindness. It's being kind to others. Being gentle with them. These are things that the fruit of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God actually gives us the ability to do, even if we don't feel like we're naturally bent in that way. Now, I get it. There are boundaries. There are, there are all those things that we have to be concerned with, but Jesus was moved with compassion. How do you feel about the sheep who have no shepherd? It's very true that the compassion of the early church, could you move on there, Trey, for me? The compassion of the early church seemed to be instrumental in the spread of the gospel. Right? Church history, we seem to kind of get this from the book of Acts, but also what little writings we have left from the first century, we realize that the Christians were compassionate to other people, and that made a difference in their lives. And I ran across a, uh, a book by a man named Dr. Paul um, brand, and he was a missionary kid. He was raised in India by missionary parents, and he wrote a book called um, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. He became a doctor, and he did some research and study into leprosy, because leprosy is a hu- was a huge problem, still a problem, in the nation of, and country of India. And so he was writing about his parents, and I just want to read this to you, because I think this is so important. He said, I look at the impact that my parents had. This is while they were in India. Although they went to India to preach the gospel, by living in tactile awareness of people's needs, they began to respond on several levels. Within a year, they were involved in the fields of medicine, agriculture, education, evangelism, and language translation. My mother and father worked for seven years in India before anyone converted to Christianity. Wow. Seven years. I can imagine that at least at some particular point in time, that was a little difficult to write those support letters. Hey, we've been on the field in seven years. We've been on the field for four years. Hey, how many people have come to Jesus? Whatever phraseology we used. Well, none, actually. Please keep sending your checks. That was a little tough. But then it says, within a year, oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry. 
My mother and father worked for seven years in India before anyone converted to Christianity. And in fact, that first conversion came as a direct result of their healing love. He goes on to say, Villagers would often abandon their sick outside our home, and my parents would care for them. Once when a Hindu priest was dying of influenza, he sent his own frail, sickly nine-month-old daughter to be raised by my parents. None of his people would care for the sick child. They would have let her die. But my parents took her in, nursed her to health, and adopted her as their own, and I gained a sister named Ruth. And my parents gained an unexpected response of trust because the villagers were so moved by the example of Christian love that a few soon accepted Christ's love for themselves. Compassion as a vehicle to share the good news of Christ. Not as a vehicle to say, look, I'm going to help you as long as you pray to receive Christ. But out of that natural expression of the fruit of the Spirit, Showing that love, which then led to someone wanting to know, why do you do this? Why do you care? There's an old phrase that I learned years ago. People don't care how much you know until they, does anybody know how to finish it? Know how much you care. Right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And for the Jesus follower, we are to care because we are given the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness, patience, gentleness. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, and be courteous. So how do you see the sheep who have no shepherd? How compassionate are you? Then Jesus has an interesting response. So he looks, he's probably tired, doesn't particularly say that in Matthew 9, but he's, he's, seeing all of these multitudes of people who are sick and who are pressing in to touch him. And then he gives a command, right? He gives a command to his disciples who are around him. And he says, whoops. (laughs) He says this, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, when I read the Bible, I like to read what it says, but I also like to think about what it doesn't say. And you don't get, get too dangerous with that. I mean, I don't, I'm not looking to build new doctrines on what he doesn't say. But this is sort of strange to me because he switches to this idea of harvest and he talks about prayer. I would expect him to say, you know, I'm moved with compassion for these people. Get out there and do something about it. Get out there and help him help them. Get out there and heal them. And now, if you read on in Matthew 10, Jesus does commission his disciples, and he sends them out, and he talks about healing the sick and raising the dead and preaching the gospel. But why the idea of harvest, and why the idea of praying? And here's where I'd like to just sort of apply it today in our lives. When Jesus, Jesus uses the word harvest seven times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and then it's used two times in Revelation. And some of those times it is used to refer to judgment, right? So like in Matthew chapter 13, as Jesus is explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares, we'll look at this actually in two weeks or part of this in two weeks, he says, let both grow together until the harvest. So the the wheat and the tares, they're sown in the same field. So the wheat's the good crop, the tares, the weeds. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so we could go on with that. But the idea is there's, there's an end time here. There's a harvest time. And so the wheat are going to be gathered and the tares are going to be burned. So the imagery of the harvest is this idea of judgment. But then in John chapter four, 
Jesus talks about something a little bit differently. He's talking about the harvest. Oh, Trey, can you get me there? Sorry, my clicker isn't working. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. So here he's talking more about, this seems to be the idea of like the product of the harvest, like the fruit of the harvest. Not so much the impetus isn't here on the idea of judgment or end times, but this idea that there is this, there is this harvest, there is this opportunity for gathering in something. In the first century, in the area of Galilee, there were a lot of sheep without shepherds. I think in 21st century Union and Snyder County, there are a lot of sheep without shepherds. There are a lot of people who can benefit by your compassion and my compassion. So what are we commanded to do? Well, we're commanded to pray. With God-given compassion, we are commanded to pray. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. I don't know. Again, that seems strange to me. Like, I should be called to go to the harvest, right? I should be called to get involved. I don't just need to pray for God to send somebody else into the harvest. But I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. I think Jesus has in mind something that I have experienced in my life, and maybe you've experienced, and if you haven't yet experienced, I'm going to encourage you to move in the direction of having this experience. And it goes by this next particular slide. When you prioritize praying, it's likely that you'll soon find yourself going. Going. If you have an individual or a person that you know is a sheep without a shepherd that you know could benefit from your compassion, either physical, financial, or spiritual, if you will begin to pray for him or her, if you will begin to pray for them, it has been my experience, and and I know it's been the experience of some of you, that you'll begin to want to go. A burden, a desire will begin to form in you to actually be the one to go. And if you just go initially, or if you just go without the praying, then you're probably not bringing in all the arsenal of help that you need to bring, which of course is the Spirit of God. But Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers in the harvest. And I believe, the way I would like to apply this, is that when we do that, eventually we become the one who goes out into the harvest. Because praying changes our viewpoint of those individual people. Another way of simply saying it is that talking to God about someone's salvation, and you can use that word in whatever way you want, whether it has to be salvation from sin, salvation from physical need, talking to God about someone's salvation usually leads to talking to that person about his or her salvation. See, when you and I, when you and I talk to God about that person, and we've moved with compassion, and we start doing that, it's not likely that God is going to say, yep, you need to go tell Bill to get involved. Yep, I want you to go talk to Mary and tell Mary to get involved. That might happen. Or, more likely, God might say, you know what, I would like you and Mary to go and get involved. Or God will say, I'd like you and Bill to go and get involved. When we are commanded to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send forth laborers into the harvest, it isn't so that you and I don't have to get involved in the harvest. 
It isn't so you and I don't have to demonstrate the compassion. I think it's so that we bring God into the mix. And so we begin to understand not only that we go, but also perhaps how we go. And we receive that as we pray. So as I wrap this up, I would like to give you a challenge. I would like to ask you to consider for 30 days praying for that person. 30 days. Pray for him, pray for her, or pray for them. Those people that God sort of has on your mind that are like a sheep without a shepherd. And maybe you're feeling that God has somehow placed them on your mind and heart, but you keep pushing them away. I'm not qualified. I don't have the resources. I don't have the time. And that might be true, but would you consider praying every day? And maybe multiple times a day, as God brings that person to your mind, pray for him or her and see what happens. There's nothing magical about 30 days, but just to pray and see if God doesn't actually call you to enter in to that harvest. And that maybe you are the actual answer to your own prayers. What's your level of compassion? I'm not asking you to do this out of guilt. I'm asking you to do this because it identifies you with your Savior, who is mighty to save. It identifies you with His activity here on earth. Activity through which the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do. Will we do it? Let's pray. Father, I know, I know this isn't easy. I cannot imagine how difficult it was on Jesus. And in his humanity, being tired. And we suffer also from things like frustration and fear. Will our help make a difference? Will it really work? God, I submit that, that we should leave that question to you. Lord, I pray that you would move us. Fill us with your compassion. Fill us with your goodness and your kindness and your patience. And that we would follow the words of Jesus and we would pray that the Lord would send laborers into the harvest. Because I believe when we do that, we may bring others with us, but often we ourselves will go. Father, I look forward to the opportunity to hear stories of people who from this congregation have reached out into the lives of others and bear testimony to what you did as they showed compassion, a genuine love, a genuine care, a genuine desire not to just dismiss, but to suffer with up close. In Jesus' name, amen.